You are listening to the Antler VC Cast. We are your hosts. I am Yusti Salavara and I'm the co-founder and managing partner of Antler. I am Pooja Barwani, the marketing director of Antler. In this series, we feature stories of exceptional people who are playing a key role in building and shaping the next wave of tech and the way it is integrated into all we do. We take a look at the transformation that is taking place in an increasingly global and digital world. We will talk about innovation, building and scaling startups, mistakes they made, pivots they navigated through and lots more. We want to know their story, how they did it, the challenges they faced and how they overcame them. Stay tuned. Today we have with us Roshni Matani, founder and CEO of The Asian Parent. The Asian Parent is a digital content and community platform for all things related to parenting. It reaches over 30 million moms monthly in the region. The content is adapted for each market and is available in 13 different languages. Welcome to the show, Roshni. Hey, everyone. Hi, Pooja. Thanks for having me today. I'm really glad to be speaking to the whole Antler crew. And the world. But, um, and the world. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are in all in Singapore, uh, in circuit breaker mode, uh, recording from our homes. Um, I, you know, how are you doing? Uh, and what day is this for you in, in working from home? Oh, goodness, Lord. So we've been working from home for about slightly more than five weeks now. Um, so for the office, we went into work from home mode in the beginning of March. And then for Singapore, I think this is like day 15, 16 of us in the circuit breaker. I recently got an announcement that it's been extended all the way till June 1st. So that's another extension of another four weeks. So which means we still have six weeks more to go. So we are barely midway through. The road is <laughs> long. I, the yeah. road is long. I feel like a hermit. And that's, that's, with, you know, that's with the optimistic thinking that it's not going to be extended further. So uh, I think Pooja was uh, having basically what's, what constitutes a nervous breakdown uh, yesterday or the day, the day before. The when, day was uh, announced. The extension was announced, yeah. I, paralysis. <laughs> We've emotionally prepared our team that, you know, it might be work from home until like July, August at least. Yeah. So, and so we're, 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 we're just starting to accept the fact that, you know, we're, we're going to just be animals in the zoo um, and stuck here for the next, next few months. The new normal. Okay. Now, so for the audience who haven't heard of the Asian parent, Roshni, why don't you tell us, you know, what the Asian parent does and what your mission is? Sure. Um, so we're the largest community of moms uh, and parents specifically in Southeast Asia. Uh, we have around 32 million users every month and we are a content community and commerce platform. So we help mom and dads raise happy, healthy, confident children through every stage of their parenting journey uh, by providing them with accurate, comprehensive, relevant content that is non-judgmental, as well as top quality products that's catered for their needs, uh, specifically using Asian ingredients. And um, all of our products are halal certified, which is basically Sharia compliant for the Muslims. Nice. And, you know, of course, helping parents, especially through a time like this, it's even more challenging uh, to be doing everything in one place. Uh, how has that been in terms of adapting your content uh, for this environment? It's really 
tough. It's really tough for the parents all across Asia, right? Especially those with kids under the age of seven who have working mothers. Uh, preschools and infant cares are pretty much shut across all of our markets. Uh, you know, in Southeast Asia, there's a concept of confinement nannies. So when women first give birth for the first 30 days, they usually have a nanny come over and help them through uh, to navigate the first one month of their baby's life, as well as uh, help the mom recuperate. But now that's not allowed as well. Um, you know, women who have given birth in Singapore, they don't have their parents or their in-laws supporting them because there's no flights, there's no travel, there's no, uh, you're not allowed to go and meet your own parents. Um, so it's really, it's really difficult. Uh, they're having to navigate the first few months of parenthood alone. And, uh, you know, for those with um, kids at home, it's, it's very, very stressful. And most of the parents are very stretched. Uh, I would say that uh, they're almost at breaking point. Uh, because they're struggling to work, run a family, deal with housework, especially in markets like Philippines, Indonesia, India, where people don't traditionally have full-time help who stay with them, but rely on part-time helpers. That's mm. so true. But I think uh, it's still, to put things into perspective, like I'm from Europe and, you know, no one has nannies in Europe. So uh, it's still it's still manageable not to, <laughs> not to, not to underplay the, the, the role of help. But, uh, you know, I, I think, We'll get through these tough times. It's I always when I, whenever I, I think about uh, the, the tough lockdown times, then I start thinking about you know how fortunate I am, and then I, then I shut up really fast. I, and by the way, I don't mean that uh, you know you, you, you know women don't go through, go through tough times, and and fathers as well when having kids. I have three kids myself, and have been there. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll get through this. We'll get through this. We will. Uh, I agree with you. <laughs> Uh, by the way, I'm very curious about your your own journey there because you know I know that your husband is also an entrepreneur in a, in a fast fast <laughs> growth venture capital backed startup, and uh, you know both of you probably work quite a bit. So how are you? How are you juggling that equation? Oh, uh, we're you know we're surviving. I think uh, the first couple of weeks, uh, both of us are so stressed out, and we, we nearly went through like a, a mental breakdown ourselves. Going, okay, how is this? How are we going to be able to navigate our businesses? Uh, work with you know all of our teams, keep up their motivation level, uh, support them, but at the same time. Uh, you know, handle our home affairs where our kid is, you know, constantly pounding on the door saying, Mama, Papa, please look at this. And Mama, Papa, do you think my artwork is pretty? And, you know, you're in the middle of having, let's say, a board call. Um, so I think um, we're, we're pretty much, you know, the first couple of weeks was quite stressful. But then um, I immediately went into like full on CEO mode. And I said, OK, I have to plan this out to the T. So we've come up with a very, very good calendar and schedule. And we've you know, outsourced a lot of um, uh, the caregiving to Zoom. Uh, so she has calls with my brother every day for 30 minutes. She has calls with her godparents. She has calls with her grandma. And I um, actually uh, delivered. Uh, so I got a grab delivery to go and send books and textbooks and worksheets to all of their homes. So for 30 minutes every day, they all uh, have Zoom calls with her where they have to read the specific textbook on the specific curriculum and do the homework with her. I think that's that's great planning and outsourcing. <laughs> uh, I resorted to color coded whiteboards. I never thought I'd be one of those moms, uh, but it works for me. And office hours for the kids. So literally, you can only <laughs> ask me questions during this time. <laughs> Is it asking me anything or only about school subjects? No, anything, because that put that's the time I'm hundred percent with you. 
But yeah, yeah. Uh, that that would be quite fun to see an AMA at the Barwani household. <laughs> yes, I, I'm not sure how much will be shareable, but um, okay. <laughs> so okay, so speaking about the demographic of women that you know, uh, and and generally moms, we're talking about uh, how we're looking at uh, buying things, consumer behavior at this time. You know, you what have you seen um, that that has happened, you know, in terms of the way we look at essentials, non-essentials, uh, you know, w- were there any surprise findings that you have noticed? Yeah. So, you know, we've definitely seen an increased activity on our site, on our app, uh, specifically on weekends, um, you know, where moms are just really congregating and trying to get suggestions from each other or sharing things. Uh, we also see through our own products itself, right, that e-commerce sales are definitely going up. Uh, people are spending money on, um, e- they're spending money, of course, on essential items, but they're also spending money on luxury luxury items that are not too expensive. So we're not talking about the Chanel bag, but we're talking about the $30 diaper bag. So she's still buying these small little gifts for herself, uh, which is quite interesting to see. Uh, we're also seeing that more and more women are buying more tops, but they're not actually buying bottoms, uh, which is quite interesting because we have both maternity tops and we have maternity <laughs> bottoms. But, you know, uh, the sales of tops have actually increased right yeah. now. Uh, the other yeah, it's a video <laughs> conferencing thing. Like, yeah. it can always be bottomless. I, I keep getting these messages like, you know what? I wasn't wearing pants during that call. <laughs> like, Thanks for sharing. That's very important to know. So who's going to volunteer to stand up right now so we can see what bottoms you wear? <laughs> I'm I'm happy Trust to. Trust me. I, mean... <laughs> I do not want to say that with me. <laughs> uh, the other thing that we're seeing is that, of course, there's an uh, increase in demand for grocery shopping, uh, increase in demand for um, for online tutoring as well. And uh, we're also, uh, another interesting trend that we saw was that people are not cutting down expenses on their kids just as yet. Mm-hmm. So they're still buying that expensive milk formula. They're still buying that expensive diaper for their child. Um, and when we did a number of qualitative and quantitative surveys with our moms, they said that they would much rather eat rice and soya sauce, which is a staple here in Asia, every day for the next one month than to ensure uh, if versus having to cut the budget of what they feed their kids. So okay, that's that's really interesting. But and and also, you know, I keep seeing that there's been an increase uh, you know, you say in online learning stuff, but also there was this interesting thing that uh textbooks, people are beginning to order textbooks because there there's too much time on the screen and uh you know let's go back to learning the old way is that something that uh-huh. you know you you see like a resurgence of because there's only so much you can learn from zoom class absolutely so we're seeing a resurgence of uh physical textbooks so we're also seeing a lot of parents buying um uh storybooks so you know that's one of the biggest things that we're seeing trading on our platform, where moms are asking, "Hey, who has storybooks? I'm willing to pay fifty dollars and get a Lala move to go to your house and uh, send me as many storybooks that you have at home that I can, you know, entertain the kids with." So we are definitely seeing a lot more tactile things um, versus just uh, online screen time. I think also it's because a lot of parents are very scared, right? Because of, uh, everything that they've read about screen time being really bad for your children. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest struggles they have because usually the American pediatric society has said that screen time should be limited to under two hours a day for your yeah. kids. Uh, 
Um, and that's just not possible, right? Uh, Zoom classes itself amount to three, four hours in a day. And then if you've got like Netflix and you've got DVDs that the kids are watching, your kids are at least on screen for eight to 10 hours uh, during circuit breaker. And so what do they do in, in that scenario as well? Right. That's a that's such a tough topic. Like I've we struggled with that for years. And kids are so smart. Like no matter what you do, as long as it's like not taking devices away from them, because you know if they don't have a device, it's pretty difficult to have a screen. But, but as long as they have the device, they go they can get around anything. Like any screen time blocker, any like restriction you have, because they. They they have some friend who has some hacker friend who's done something something and these things like, you know, go around like wildfire amongst the kids. Uh, such a tough topic. <clears throat> yeah. So my eight year old can somehow go around the uh, uh, Apple Screen Time uh, functionality on iPhone. I'm like, I'm sure our kids are better at Zoom than us right now. <laughs> yeah, for, for, yes. for sure. Like the next security breaches are going to be kids like harassing, uh, <laughs> harassing <laughs> our web webinars, you know. But yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if you have any good solutions on the screen time topic. Uh, I hadn't thought about it in the context of increased screen time in the times of uh, COVID. But yeah, so definitely, yeah. I would I would suggest that um, you know just do a bulk order from Spotlight from uh, any of the art and craft stores. So we're also seeing a resurgence of people buying paint, people buying drawing blocks. Um, we're seeing increased uh, search for Lego. We're seeing an increased search for Play-Doh, for plasticine, for playmaking. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of, um, you know, just crafts. Uh, I, I think we're starting to see a resurgence of crafts. Okay. And uh, for us as well, we, we spent quite a lot of money to buy lots and lots of art and craft stuff for our kid. And it's kept us so entertained. So every one hour, we'll get to like a new craft. And we'll say, okay, now entertain yourself with this. Yeah, we, we've just ordered our first cross stitch. Uh, you remember that? She was speaking our time. So, so let, me see, let me see if we actually get to it. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm contemplating ordering a, a sewing machine just to keep them occupied anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so you see this change, all these changes, these fundamental changes in the way people are doing things, buying things, you know, thinking of uh, teaching their kids. How much do you think would be here to stay? I mean, and do you really think in terms of a mindset shift, this is going to be uh, something that's going to happen uh, post-COVID? Yeah, I, I think that ultimately, uh, first of all, online e-commerce behavior so previously, only around 5% of Indonesian moms would buy anything online, their groceries or their diapers. Um, but now we're, we're pretty sure it's going to go up to about 30 40%. And now that they've tried the convenience of online and online commerce, uh, it's very hard to go back to the stores. So I think that this has really, really pushed a lot of emerging Southeast Asia into uh, becoming e-commerce first, becoming digital first. So I think that is a huge change and that's going to be a huge win for all of the e-commerce players from Tokopedia to Lazada to Shopee, et cetera. So, um, so I'm pretty sure they're going to be having a very good Q2 as well. Um, we're also going to see a lot of people going into online education. Um, parents previously were very skeptical about online tutors. Uh, but you know, even at the Asian Parent, what we've done is we've hired a full-time online tutor who then works with all of our children who work for the company mm -hmm. uh, and so that the parents don't have to do homework with the kids. The tutor's the one doing the homework with the kids. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was just a service that we offered to our team because we knew that a lot of our 
a lot of our employees are parents and they're very stressed out about having to do, you know, algebra with the kids or teach the kids fraction. Uh, so we said, let's take away that stress from them and just hire these online tutors, university students who can really help these kids. And I think, um, so it's really interesting because we have our parents in Nigeria, for example, being tutored by our university students in Singapore. Wow. So it's quite, uh, it's quite fascinating to just see, uh, you know, all this cross-border learning that's happening. And so that also means that countries that have, uh, you know, generally weaker education systems can benefit from the advancement of uh, the education systems in some other markets as well. Uh, the other thing is that because my daughter joins in all of these international classes, um, she has made friends from all around the world. You know, she has Irish friends, she has Scottish friends, <laughs> she has Nigerian friends, her Filipino friends. So, um, so it really exposes the children to really become global citizens from day one. I, I think the the way that your brand has adapted, especially the online tutor. Uh, method, it sounds really fantastic because, you know, parents are not professional teachers and this is hard. So what advice would you give to brands trying to adapt? Uh, you know, you said marketplace, I mean, e-commerce and, and, and we know that Southeast Asia specifically, people buy from marketplaces. How can other uh, more traditional brands adapt to this? So I think it's, uh, you know, we got to just really stop running away from the fact that um, should we be digital or should we not be digital? I think it's very clear right now that we need to be both online and offline. You know, today's pandemic might be affecting the whole offline world a lot more than the online world. But tomorrow's pandemic could be affecting the online world and not the offline world, right? So, um so my main thing is that I think no business should be surviving on either just being purely offline or purely on online. I think it needs to really be an O2O model. And I think that uh, for businesses that are predominantly offline right now, uh, this is the opportunity to really try to, you know, uh, think out of the box. So if you're, you've been generally hosting a lot of offline events, then this is the time to start online webinars. Um, and if you have been, um, you know, generally not big on social media, this is also the time to build up your social following. I think it's really tough because a lot of businesses in Southeast Asia are still predominantly offline. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two fundamental things you you can do, and I keep telling this to our portfolio companies. Like, one is obviously to be very conservative with your spending, to to maintain like good runway and 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 a cash cash position, and then you know use this as an opportunity to figure out your business model. Like, we have we have a company that's um, you know working partly in the travel space, very hard oh. hit, hard hit, you know. Tough, oh. tough time for them, right? But they were lucky enough to close the funding round. It's not public yet, so I won't mention it. But, uh, you know, just on the verge of this pandemic, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. And um, now th this can be a blessing in disguise. Like they, they anyway, long term, wanted to move away from travel to a broader play. Um, so this now forces their hand. They, they must figure out like much faster what to do. So I think, you know, entrepreneurs out there, uh, you know, take the time now, I would say, to, to figure out like what's a good, sustainable business model for the future because these pandemics will keep <clears throat> coming, right? This is not going to be yeah, the but last you know, The way I see it is that, you know, travel is going to be hit for the next six months, one year, but it's going to rebound. There's no way people are not going to travel. Um, you know, whether it's even just short distance traveling, uh, everyone's experiencing cabin fever right now. E everyone's fed up of just being at home. 
Um, so the moment that travel restrictions are out and once there's a vaccination and we know that it's kind of safe to travel, uh, you're going to see every single person saying, I'm saving up all my money so that I can you know, go through my bucket list and see all of the countries that I want to see. And because I can really hold up in this pigeonhole for the last one year. So I yes. think it's just a case of uh, travel companies surviving the next one year. Yeah, no, no, fully agree, fully agree. Uh, we, in this particular case, it's about building a second leg that allows them to uh, also grow when uh, travel is dead. And then, you know, they're going to be in good times when travel picks up again. Then they have actually two strong legs. And that's that's how you can run instead of hoping on one leg, right? Yeah, what a beautiful, absolutely. Beautiful analogy. Um, okay, switching gears from COVID, um, <laughs> I, I, I always ask about these origin stories. I wanted to hear yours. Like, uh, you know, how did, how did you get started on this uh, journey of, uh, you know, doing the Asian parent and building, helping moms, helping parents, you know? What, what was behind mm-hmm. that? So it's really interesting. I, w- I was just um, talking to my husband about this last night itself. And I started the Asian parent in the last economic crisis. So this was, um, you know, when we had uh, subprime uh, in, in, in the US. And I was living in New York at that point in time. And I remember, and I was living on Wall Street itself. And Wall Street was the place that was, you know, ground zero, right? And, um, and it, the, the, the scariest thing for me was, um, walking around and seeing how depressed everybody was. And I, I, there was this one experience that I'll never forget where I was walking to the bakery and I passed a building. And that was the first time I ever saw someone try to, uh, someone actually commit suicide because uh, this person jumped off the building. And, uh, and that's when I knew things were really, really bad. And uh, this was like really, really early days of uh, the 2008, 2009 crisis. And so just being able to uh, experience and witness that, I think, has also given me a lot of preparation for what we're going through today, because I feel like I lived through 2008, 2009, very, very up close and personal. Um, But so that was basically my origin story, right? Um, so I was living in New York, in Wall Street, um, and I decided that, hey, I wanted to do something more meaningful with my life. And I wanted to do something that was that did not encompass me working for someone. I was very, very exhausted and tired of listening to what others wanted me to do. And, you know, I, I had that attitude, which was like, you're not the boss of me. So, so I, I was sitting on the steps of the South Street Seaport and uh, I, was, uh, I was talking to a group of friends at that point in time. And I said, okay, I've got two ideas and both of them have to do with writing because I love writing and my training is in journalism. And the first idea was I wanted to do 365 different jobs in 365 days and a chronicle the journey of what it was like to be like a road sweeper or be a trader in a hedge fund and, and just Amazing. talk about the, the experience uh, of, of, you know, that nine to six in that industry. And then the second option was to uh, create the Asian parrot. And uh, everyone <laughs> around me, looked at you should have done the other one. Yeah. That sounds yeah, 365. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, and I was like, I feel passionate about both. And, and so everyone kept saying like both of them are so weird. Like, you know, the first one, 365 jobs, but that doesn't sound like a real business. Like you can't build something around that. Maybe you could write a really cool book. 
Um, And then for the Asian parent, they said, what the hell do you know about parenting? You're 24 years old (laughs) and, you know, you don't have kids. And um, we're not even sure if you're capable of being a mom. I mean, Roshni. And that that was true. (laughs) Like I was a crazy party animal. And, um, and I said, no, I really feel very passionate about parenting. And they're like, why Asian parenting? And I said, I'm living in New York and I realize how different Asians are. Um, and, and, you know, our value systems, as well as just the way that we're raising our children. Mm-hmm. And uh, I decided to go with the Asian parent. And so you and moved back are. to Asia and started building, building here or? Uh, no, I, so I started the, uh, the first six months out of New York itself. The business wasn't registered. Um, and so it was just really about testing the hypothesis. I remember going to GoDaddy.com, buying buying the domain name, going to Template Monster, buy, spending $100, buying a WordPress template, learning how to code, uh, you know, uploading my first site, being so proud of it, uh, having my first logo, which was out of Microsoft Paint. <laughs> so nice. thank you, Bill Gates. <laughs> so you were really a solo founder. You started on your own as a blog and a vision to do something to help the specific demographic of people. That's right. So, so I wrote the first 1000 articles myself, um, you know, and I was the first salesperson. I was the first uh, graphic designer. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun. It allowed me to really, really understand the business fundamentals. And then I decided to come back to Singapore for two reasons. The first one was that there was a startup competition called Startup at Singapore. Uh, and that was held by NUS Enterprise. And, um, you know, if you got, if, if you were, you pass the semi semifinals, they would actually pay for your airfare back home. And I was tired of being in New York. It was so brutally cold. And by then I wasn't making much money because, you know, I had quit my job and I was focusing on this. And so I said, okay, um, you know, there's a free air ticket back to Singapore. So I'm going to join this competition and see if I win anyway. So I actually have my business plan from 10 years ago from the competition. And I was just reading through it. And it's like as if I mapped out my last 10 years. It's exactly as I had envisioned it. So let, me, so let me get this straight. You started writing a blog about parenting in Asia as a 24-year-old. Yeah, without being York, a parent. That's the most that, amazing. With, without, having, <laughs> without being a parent. And you wrote what the first 1,000 blog posts yourself? I know. It's, it, it's, you know. <laughs> incredible <laughs> hustle. So, so my, my my main question, so fake it till you make it, right? So, my 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 main question is: When you had kids, did did did, did that match your <laughs> match your blog poster? They were terrible. Like I would not read my first one thousand articles. It was terrible. It had zero empathy. My, you know, it was just it was it was like googling skills, putting together other people's thought nice. pieces. Um, it was yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> I have no idea why anyone read us in the first few years. No, but that's what's amazing. So as a par- as parents, I just I think it's fascinating that you you wrote all these articles without being a parent, and uh, now that you are a parent, uh, how is your how is your perception changed about parenting? <laughs> so I think it's um, it's easy to be a theoretical parent, right? But the reality is, it's it's really very emotional. Um, and there is no one size fits all solution for anyone. And I think that's why people liked us because there were two things that we did differently. So the, uh, actually three things. So the first was we focused on Asia and we really, really talked about the Asian value systems. And I think that if you look at Asia, right, we're more than half of the world's population, but our parenting styles are never given, uh, the type of spotlight as a Western parenting style. 
Um, so whether it's about, you know, our discipline methods or whether it's our weaning, for example, the first food we feed babies are rice and it's not avocado and it's not purees. Um, so I think it was being able to bring the spotlight to Asian culture and tradition and letting Asian parents know that, hey, it's normal and you don't have to be reading some of these other sites um, and, and trying to figure out if you should be feeding your baby pasta. And it's okay to be feeding your baby dal and chapati, for example. Mm -hmm. And then I think the second thing uh, that really hit home was that we focused on religion. So we did not shy away from religion. Um, so when we were writing for Filipino parents, we would talk a lot about Catholicism. If we were writing for the Thais, we would take uh, Buddhist prayers into consideration. We would uh, take a lot of the Buddhist culture into consideration. And the same way for Singapore as well. We have a lot of things about the Taoist prayers that you should be having if you're trying to, you know, uh, get pregnant. These are the certain mm -hmm. types of temples you should be going to, etc. So we never uh, shied away from religion. And I think that a lot of other parenting communities, they just don't talk about religion. Okay. How do you, so what's next? Like, I, I'm very interested in the expansion story. Like, you already mentioned it, Nigeria. You're already there, right? Uh, as the oh. Asian parent. Um, how, what's, what's Actually, the future as African parent. Yeah, I'm sure the brand is different, you know, so, so, um, but so is Africa like your next frontier that you want to conquer or? Um... I, so I think before COVID, it was very clear that, you know, for us, it was about really being international, uh, focusing on international expansion. So we hired a country manager in the Middle East as well. Uh, we were in the process of launching our Middle East office. We have Sri Lanka up and running. Um, so we really were looking for all emerging markets. Uh, the next market we were looking at was also Latin America. But I think a lot of that has come, you know, we've pressed pause on it for now um, as we really focus on um, reassessing the home markets, which is pretty much the six Southeast Asian markets. So for the other countries that uh, we're already in, like Nigeria and Sri Lanka, we're still keeping operations going, but we're not investing in it as much as we are in Southeast Asia at this moment. But uh, for the next six months to one year, our focus really is on our e-commerce platform. Mm -hmm. So we have our own direct-to-consumer brand, and that's doing really, really well. We're actually one of the top stretch mark creams in Indonesia on online right now. And so we have about 20 different SKUs, and uh, we're really focusing on doubling that up to 40 SKUs by the end of the year. Um, but how much is China part of your strategy? No, we're not touching and, China. But and uh, it's, it's interesting because you 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 raised your recent round from from Chinese investors. Uh, is it like a clear handshake? You're not going to China, or or that they're not pushing you mm -hmm. to go there. I don't know some of these things you cannot share, obviously. But I think uh, our strategy is just to avoid the three large markets. We don't want the U.S., mm -hmm. we don't want India, and we don't want China. We want the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So while the Chinese guys are so busy concentrating on China. And the Indian guys are so busy concentrating on India and the American guys are, again, concentrating on home markets or English markets. Yeah. We're going to be uh, big around the rest of the world. And when you look at the rest of the world, it's actually much larger than any of these populations. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Um, Rashi, just about, you know, you, what you mentioned, Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia and, and you localize in all these different languages. What, how, how? How is your strategy when you grow in terms of you hire totally local, but then how do you keep the brand consistent as one being, you know, having so many locations? Yeah, so we, I mean, the first thing is that um, we, you can't keep it consistent. So the fact is you have to adapt to what 
local markets want. Um, so some markets were app first, some markets were web first. It really depends on the behavior, whether parents are digitally savvy enough. In Singapore, in Thailand, we're actually more app first. In Sri Lanka, we're more web first. In Nigeria, we're more web first. Um, and then, of course, it's about local languages. So in Nigeria, we're available in Swahili. We're available in Pidgin English. Um, so it's it's very hard to keep anything consistent, right? Because it's just the philosophy of what we stand for. And a lot of the content can be translated into local languages. But otherwise, um, it's really about going local and understanding what the local markets want and adapting it locally. So we're not a platform play, right? We can't be a Facebook and launch into a market and say, hey, we're just a technology solution. Because not just are we technology, we're also a lot of content and content has to be localized. Okay. Yeah, it's, and- well, one, thought, one thing that you know, uh, you know, strikes me about how you do things is this um, big investment in insights and analytics uh, that you clearly have in-house. And I think it sounds, it sounds like it probably powers your expansion as well and these very nuanced localized strategies. So when did you actually start building that and what was sort of the thought process behind investing so much into it? So I think um, we took our first round of proper institutional investor, which was Vertex, in 2015. So it's only been about five years. And after taking investment from Vertex, I think that's when we really grew. And that's when we pivoted from being a media company into a technology company. Mm -hmm. Now, it takes a little bit of time because you have to build out all of the dashboards. So even for clients right now, we have a platform, let's say, called VIP Parents which means these are parents who have a certain amount of social following, whether it's on Instagram, whether it's on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, etc. Generally speaking, they have at least a thousand followers up to a hundred thousand followers. Now we send assignments to these parents through the app directly, and they can choose to accept the assignment or choose to reject the assignment. But we also have a dashboard which allows brands to log in there and create the assignments and really target which parents, which group of parents do they want doing these assignments. So a lot of things are quite seamlessly integrated uh, between the consumer end as well as the, uh, the, for the brands. And, you know, that's where we can become the platform play. And I think that's um, our, our focus on technology insights data has happened since 2015 and especially in the last two years. Because to be able to focus on all of that, you need quite a lot of investments. Right. So it's seamlessly integrated into the core of what you do and then you as a, almost like a side product you also get a lot of insights into how to grow your own business in a way right so how to yeah, help so the I, brands and then you know you can actually leverage that data yeah and i was just looking at our talent pool in the company and five years ago we only had uh maybe five six percent of our employees were engineers or product people Today, it's about 25%. And our goal is to bring that up to 45%. So, so I can see how we're becoming more and more of a technology and data company uh, versus a content company. Previously, it would be about 90% uh, editorial people. But now editorial people is only 20% of our whole staff count. Yeah. Well, speaking of your insights, uh, one of the uh, key insights from your recent Southeast Asian uh, report was uh, the statistic about most of the Southeast Asian countries, uh, the women in, in Southeast Asian countries not trusting their governments except Singapore. What did you What did you think of that? In terms of just to give context to the listeners, this was in terms of um, 
the number of uh, cases reported of people actually having COVID. Yeah, so these were the official figures that the countries were announcing. Now, this research was done, of course, in March. Uh, so we're doing this research every month, so we're updating it. So April's research is ongoing, and we should get the results out in the next couple of weeks. But with regards to um, that specific question, most of Southeast Asia that did not trust their official figures. And I understand why, because <laughs> they a lot of the countries were not being very transparent about how many cases. And there wasn't... A, a, not necessarily they weren't being transparent, but they weren't doing enough testing. So, you know, you had certain markets uh, like Indonesia that came out and yeah. said, we have no COVID cases. Um, and thanks and to God. Was a little, we are thanks immune. to God. That was, that was what it says. <laughs> By God's grace. Yeah. yeah. At the time, exactly. when they, had, so, they had one testing facility and a thousand, uh, thousand test kits in a country of 265 million or whatever it is, right? So. <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, so it, it's really not surprising uh, that a lot of Southeast Asians were going, okay, come on, now you're pulling a fast one on us because the whole world, and we've seen, uh, you know, Italy come down to its knees. We've seen, you know, China's uh, so badly affected by this. How can you say that our country has no no COVID cases? Uh, so I think uh, if you look at the statistics, uh, you know, 59% of Singaporeans said that they trusted it, but only 2% of Indonesians say that they trusted the official figures. Um, but I think that the numbers might be a little bit more different right now because in the last one month, you have seen um, you know, different countries and government agencies stepping up and saying, hey, we need to host more press conferences. We need to talk about what's happening uh, openly. So yeah. transparent communication. Yeah, everyone's woken up to it, even in, yeah. like, even, even in the United States, which is the most interesting thing. So, um, yeah, that's the facts. So... Um, we're moving to the last part of our podcast and Roshni, I'd like to ask you if you could change one thing from the past, what would it be and why? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> so <laughs> if I had to change one thing, I think it would be, Ooh, there's so many things. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's about talent management. And I think you have to also know who you are as, uh, as a leader, um, I think in the first few years of running this business, I was very, very young and I don't think I knew how to run a company properly. And I think I was not as confident in myself, my own ability. So I would second guess myself. And I see this in a lot of young female entrepreneurs uh, where we go, okay, do we actually deserve a seat on this table? Uh, you know, and especially if we have less work experience, uh, like myself, you know, starting a business at 24 means that you don't really have a lot of uh, experience uh, uh, leading people, leading teams. And so I think I second guessed myself a lot. And I would read different types of management textbooks on how leaders should behave. And I would try to emulate that without understanding that uh, you have to find your own authentic voice. Otherwise, people can see through you and then you won't be a very effective leader. So I think if I could go back in time, um, I would really have focused on figuring out who am I, what do I stand for, and what do I really want to build here and uh, try to be as authentic as possible right from day one. I think that's great advice for all founders, not just female founders, but, um, and, you know, what keeps you going at, in, in times that are tough, especially like this where you have to manage so much, is there 
Is there a sort of theme song or quote that you live by? Uh, no, I live by whiskey. <laughs> I love whiskey. <laughs> so I would say that, you know, my, my bar is very, very much stocked. <laughs> it's, it's good. Like for you, it's whiskey. For, for Pooja, it's uh, gin. And for me, it's alcohol. <laughs> Just any type. You don't yeah. have a specific. <laughs> but, uh, but so, you know, uh, and, and the team always laughs. Uh, so the one thing uh, we were having a catch up call the other day and they said, you know, Roshni, how are you doing? And, you know, what What are you missing most about the office? And I was like, my supply of Red Bull. I'm missing Red Bull. <laughs> so so they were very sweet. They actually went online and they ordered me some. So oh, that's really great. Cool. That's nice. great. Uh, but yeah, but there, I don't think there's a specific quote or anything that I live by, but I am a big, big fan of Lee Kuan Yew. Um, so if you come into our office right above my desk, I have a painting of Lee Kuan Yew. Um, and I often find myself, uh, if I'm feeling um, nervous about something or if I'm feeling confused, I do end up reading uh, his books as well as I read a lot of his, um, his different sharings and his philosophy. And I do like his style of governance. I do like his style of leading. Um, so he's definitely someone I look up to and I, I, I read a lot of his, uh, his books. I think he's the ultimate Asian parent. <laughs> exactly <laughs> okay you see you want to awesome. wrap yeah, it up so, with our last question yeah sure so um, our, our last last question is always about uh, we're lazy so we're sourcing you know uh, guests to the podcast by asking our guests so who, who do you think we should get on the podcast who would you love to see uh, as a guest here <clears throat> wow uh, who would I love to see I I think it would be quite fascinating to um to see a couple of former entrepreneurs who have, uh, you know, left the ecosystem or who are um, not entrepreneurs at this moment uh, to see if they are rethinking about becoming an entrepreneur during this pandemic. Um, so I think because a lot of companies get built during a crisis mode, and I think it would be really great to see a couple of who have pretty much exited the industry. So a couple of people that come to mind, uh, you know, Florian Cornu, who was previously uh, the CEO of Locations. Yep. Um, I think it would be interesting to see if he's, you know, planning on starting something. I think uh, Jualo Pedro would be quite interesting as well. So Jualo sold to Caro. And I know uh, Pedro's just been, uh, you know, just checking out the market for the last year or so. Um, so I think just having people like them uh, to understand what they're thinking about and what the opportunities they're seeing right now. So they're not running businesses, but they've been analyzing the market and looking for opportunities. Great. Those are interesting. Florian is an antler advisor. So that's a, that's a good idea. Yeah. Let's go there. Thank you, Roshni. Thank you, sure, Roshni. Thank you. Stay safe, stay home, stay sane. Thank you. You have been listening to the Antler VC cast with UC Salavera and me, Pooja Parwani. To know more about Antler, our portfolio companies and our philosophy, visit us at www.antler.co or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook at Antler Global. Thank you for listening.